On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Pretty varied selection of stories on the front pages of the Sunday papers today. Start with the Business Post, which tells us that Pfizer is planning to invest more than €1 billion Euro in a new state-of-the-art biotech manufacturing facility at its Grange Castle site in Dublin. The firm is understood to be at the advanced stages of plans for a new facility, which would represent one of the largest pharmaceutical investments in the history of the state. Yeah, construction of the project, according to the Business Post, expected to commence in the second quarter of next year. Completion date for the end of 2026. Spokeswoman for Pfizer declined to answer specific questions but said that it was constantly assessing its manufacturing network to ensure it could continue to bring breakthroughs to patients which is pretty good news considering that only last week the Business Post was voicing some concern about the future of Intel jobs at, uh, at Leakslip so good to know that some other multinationals are certainly committed to the country also on the front page of the Business Post this morning first time buyers who avail of the new maximum mortgage limits could be pushed into financial distress if interest rates are raised by a further two percentage points according to research commissioned by the central bank uh, the ECB is expected to hike rates again this coming week and could bring them to two percent next year it's already hiked tw- uh, rates twice this year so far in July and September uh, last week Gabriel McClough the governor of the central bank announced a loosening of the mortgage lending rules from January this will allow first time buyers to take out mortgages of up to four times their income rather than just 3.5 times uh, but central bank research shows that while more people will be able to get a mortgage and buy a home as a result of the rule changes a cohort of those borrowing who are near the maximum limit could struggle to make their monthly repayments over the course of the lifetime of the loan if interest rates do continue to climb as they are all expected to do and also on the front page of the Business Post something which we'll discuss more extensively I'm sure in the coming hour uh, the government is privately hoping that Rishi Sunak will succeed uh, Liz Truss as the next Prime Minister rather than Boris Johnson uh, although Michal Martin and other ministers have been careful not to express any public views on the contest there is a belief in government that Sunak the former Chancellor of the Exchequer offers the best chance of resolving the row over the Northern Ireland Protocol one government source is pretty blunt in the piece they say who in their right mind would think that after six years of political chaos that the answer is Boris Johnson uh, a large number of Tory members think the answer is Boris Johnson. We will discuss that uh, more uh, in the hours to come. Front page of the Sunday Independent uh, tells us that Mary Lou MacDonald's husband uh, is threatening to sue Shane Ross, the author of a recent biography on the Sinn Féin leader, for defamation. Solicitors acting for Martin Lanigan, who is uh, Mary Lou MacDonald's husband, are understood to have hand-delivered a letter to the home of Mr Ross in Enniskerry in Wicklow last Tuesday, setting out a complaint in relation to a chapter in his best-selling book. The chapter relates to the couple's purchase, extension and renovation of their home in Cabra. The Dublin firm of solicitors McCartan and Burke, who are separately acting for MacDonald in the libel action she's pursuing against RTE, state in the letter that claimed imputation in the book is groundless and untrue and that Martin Lanigan had reasonable expectation of privacy as to his financial affairs. He is demanding an apology, financial compensation and legal costs or says that he will issue legal proceedings without further notice. Uh, uh, Shane Ross said last night he was surprised to receive the letter. He believed it was perfectly appropriate that the ownership of all politicians' properties uh, held jointly with their partners should be transparent. He says that there's no allegation in the book of impropriety, but adds that the book asks reasonable questions which should be answered. He says he will fully defend uh, any proceedings. Uh, also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, Dara O'Brien has given an interview to Hugh O'Connell. He says that he's pushing for temporary tax breaks for developers to build apartment blocks in cities and urban areas. He says there is a role for targeted tax measures to unlock apartment developments and increase supply. He suggests either a time-limited reduction in VAT on the construction of apartment blocks or focused tax allowances for developers, uh, which is fascinating, but worth remembering that it's only five days since the Cabinet signed off on a finance bill and three weeks since the Cabinet signed off on a budget that didn't do either of those things. So maybe they are, A, either harder to do than it looks, or B, that there's a little bit of internal coalition resistance to the idea. Um, Front page of the Sunday Times, 
The Taoiseach has defended the government's response to the Ukrainian refugee crisis as it emerged that more than 30 refugees who arrived in Ireland this weekend have been turned away from state-provided accommodation. Michal Martin says it's not fair to suggest that the government was underprepared and that it had moved more quickly to ensure that the most vulnerable were cared for. Ireland was no different to states across Europe struggling to accommodate refugees, he said. Uh, more on that in a couple of minutes. Uh, and finally for now, the Irish Mail on Sunday, uh, which says that the Justice Minister Helen McEntee has been formed into a humiliating climb-down after she scrapped her controversial decision to repatriate the convicted murder of a champion Irish boxer to his native England. The U-turn comes after Miss McEntee previously approved a repatriation application by the English career criminal uh, Logan Jackson earlier this year. Jackson was convicted last December of the murder of 20-year-old Limerick man Kevin Sheehy. Uh, However, the decision to repatriate the the killer after serving just weeks of his mandatory life sentence stunned the victim's family. That prompted Mr. She's mother, Tracy Tully, to launch a judicial review, uh, which was due to be heard in the High Court a few weeks ago. But Miss McEntee has now scrapped her original decision. Uh, that is the front page of the Mail on Sunday, and that's our quick tour of the front pages of all of the papers today. Uh, we're joined in studio to discuss them by Tanya Ward, the Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance, and by Larry Donnelly, who's a Boston attorney and law lecturer at Galway University. Uh, thank you both very much for coming in. That's the first time I think I've said the words Galway University out loud, rather than the old NUI title. Yeah, and I do have to correct you again because it's University of Galway. Galway, oh, not okay. Galway University. Sorry, Gavin, exactly. sorry. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to translate it from Old School in the Gulliver on the fly. That, that's my problem there. Um, we'll start with the front page of the Sunday Times. Um, the Taoiseach defending the government's response to the uh, Ukrainian refugee crisis. Um, this comes after Roderick Gorman said that he could not guarantee that uh, Ukrainians showing up in this country uh, would be left with any option other than to, to sleep on the streets. Um, Larry, your thoughts on that and some of the coverage in it this morning? Yeah, I mean, I suppose to speak editorially first, I I think that some of the stories in the papers today that we're focusing in on, uh, they're pretty grim and they match the weather outside, I'm afraid. Um, This is a a very uh, unfortunate story about these people. I think that they're going to continue, Ukrainians are going to continue to come here as long as things escalate there and they fear that their their lives, in fact, uh, are in jeopardy. Um, And now we have a situation where, I mean, in fairness, I mean, 58,000 people they have found accommodation for, but uh, now we have people in an absolute horrendous uh, position uh, and the government scrambling to try to deal with this. Uh, one, a couple things I'd say is first is in terms of uh, there have been lots of stories about people who had made their, their places uh, available for people. They said they had beds, they could put people up and they never heard back. There wasn't mm-hmm. follow through, etc. Uh, I wonder if that could be revisited. Um, the second thing I'd say, and this is I suppose in a broader sense, uh, is that a lot of, of course it's anecdotal, uh, but an awful lot of people have said to me in recent weeks, Things to the effect of we're housing all these Ukrainians very, very quickly. Uh, a lot of, pe- of our own people uh, we can't find houses for. They can't buy houses, etc. Yeah. And in a context where we are having kind of uh, an ongoing conversation about the potential for the rise of the far right uh, here in Ireland, whether mm. that's viable or not, uh, certainly sentiments like that, uh, which at one level I can understand, to be mm. frank. We've already um, had some of them in this morning when he, when he even mentioned in the introduction that we were going to be discussing whether we could have tried to avoid the prospect of Ukrainians... Um, sleeping on the streets and I've already had a couple of replies on Twitter saying well what about you cheeky so and so so and so is not the words they used um, what about all the Irish sleeping on the streets there is a sentiment out there absolutely and we saw I think it was in Kildare there was some mobilisation around the issue uh, when you, there was a, a I suppose the prospect of a lot of Ukrainians settling in a particular area so um, in a broader sense I, I suppose first the immediate thing is let's find these people's safety let's find them a safe place to go because they're fleeing uh, an abominable situation I think we can all agree on that uh, but I do have some concerns about the wider longer term fallout from this 
Um, Tanya Ward, your thoughts on, on that and the reporting of it this morning? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to start with what's happening in Ukraine to understand what's happening here when it comes to the numbers. Um, I mean, there has been a turn in the war. Putin can't get to the various cities when trying to get to, uh, and he's using suicide uh, drones from Iran to do it. And, and that really has changed, turned up the dial because what Putin wants to achieve uh, is drive people out of Ukraine and into Europe and he wants to put more pressure on European leaders to to really back down when it comes to Ukraine so that's why we're seeing this this surge and, and there is a story in the Sunday Times which is, which is good to kind of highlight that because I had an opportunity to meet a um, number of Ukrainians this week uh, through a forum meeting, national forum meeting that was taking place and they told me a similar story to the one that was covered there in, in the Sunday Times of the mm. family just deciding to fly over over. And basically what's happened is a lot of people tried to hang on. They wanted to hang mm. on as long mm. as they could. Uh, but what's happening is the drones are hitting home. They're flying overhead. The kind of insecurity that people in Northern Ireland lived with, that's what people are living with. And, and even if you think about Cresslaw and what we've seen there, the enormous hit to society when you lose 10 people like that, that's happening all the time in Ukraine. Mm. And the other thing that, that's happening there is that he, he's targeting their energy supplies as well. So Ukraine is very cold in winter so you can see why people are making the decision to leave and I suppose this is something, this is our contribution. This is our tan- chance to stand up. We don't send weapons to Ukraine in, 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 in this war mm. but what we can do is we can accommodate people coming here. The question is, is how do we do that? Because because um, Larry has raised a really important issue because we, we have a massive housing crisis in this country, um, and I'm always struck about it. I don't know. I don't think it's the numbers that is, uh, uh, that is the issue because I'm often reminded of the polls that arrived when Ireland joined, when uh, Poland and other Eastern European countries joined joined mm, the EU. Like yeah. it was over like two hundred thousand people arrive really quickly into Ireland, and, and most of them settle. You know, a lot of them settle in the country. We all our children play up with, with children of, of Polish parents. They work in other companies or organisations. Mm. Etc. Mm. So you know we we have a, a fantastic economy at the moment. There's loads of jobs there. So that's not the issue. Mm. The issue is housing accommodation. And I think if you look at some of the solutions the government has relied on. It is being led mostly by the Department of Children. That's a problem in one way, to be honest, because mostly what they do is emergency type accommodation. Um, yeah. And so they're relying on hotels. That's the only thing that's available. They've taken up 25% of the hotel accommodation stock in Ireland. Often what they're doing is they're they're relying on sometimes hotel accommodation. It's not fully occupied, you know, during the winter months. But it is a problem for some local c- economies that are really just built around tourism. Because um, even if, I suppose, Ukrainian refugees get jobs, and many mm-hmm. of them have done they don't spend in the same way that tourists do when, when they're on holiday mm-hmm. so there is a need and of course nor, nor is there much other private sector accommodation that they could move into yeah, so if they do it. say that they yeah. want to be reliant on someone else they want to go and get a house that, <laughs> try and find me somewhere in Daft that either can take them exactly so there's a need for a reset in how we respond because the numbers of people in Ukraine are not going to change um, and until the Ukraine the war is resolved until the war ends we have to come up with an alternative solution to this crisis Um it has to be across government. It's not this, just the one minister that has responsibility for this. And we have to think of solutions and plans that take, take account of a big emergency movement of people because, it, you know, you, you, there's, you know, we're still talking about potentially nuclear um, devices being used potentially in Ukraine. Mm. That is going to result in a big, mm. massive increase of people coming yeah. in. So on the emergency side of things, I wonder, do, is it time to bring in the uh, international organisations that know how to do emergency refugee accommodation 
legislation in line with good quality standards so we so can take... bring in the likes of the Red Cross. Exactly, exactly. This is it. I mean... But th- the Red Cross are already managing the, the, the portal to rent rooms. Well, you might you might be bringing in the international experts though that are doing this because the Red Cross are the ones in Ukraine at the moment. Yeah. It's the Red Cross and UNICEF doing the work. That would strike me as one possible solution. But the other thing is, is obviously to get to get building alternative type accommodation. It probably needs to be in congregated settings because it's the only way to do it in such a, in such a, a small time frame. But you can do lots of other things as well, like mobile clinics. If the if if Ukrainian refugees are placed in an area where you don't have the services. You can have the GP arriving in the clinic. You can have the community welfare officers arriving in a, a mobile clinic. There are lots of solutions, but one, no one government department is going to do it on their own. You're going to have to have government departments working together to respond to this crisis. And I have to say there has been an amazing response from people on the ground, local people trying to provide accommodation and supports. Um, and, and But we're, we're going to need to see people step forward mm. again to help with the current crisis. Um, the, the, the piece that um, Tanya mentioned by the way, on page three of the Sunday Times, just outlines the circumstances as to why some people who might have been holding out and didn't want to leave and have now decided that that now is the time that they have to get out of the country. Um, The piece speaks to uh, Elena Lanavenka, who had already booked flights to Dublin when she received word that new arrivals might end up having to be uh, sleeping on streets. Um, She's due to arrive in the first week of November uh, with two of her sons. Her husband is obviously going to be staying behind because he's of conscription age. Um, But they say that they had been desperate to try and, and hold out. They didn't want to leave Ukraine because they hoped that the war would end, but that she booked the first flight to Dublin that she could afford after Kyiv came under renewed Russian attack earlier this month with some of those airstrikes. And since then, we've seen uh, Iranian manufactured drones also launching attacks. She says, from bombings, from rockets flying over the house, from power outages, from the cold, from constant air alarms, when you have to sit in the corridor on the floor behind two walls. We are patriots of our country. We didn't want to leave anywhere until the end, but a long period of stress and new shelling forced us to leave, at least for a while which maybe gives some context as to why people might now only be leaving the country eight months into this um, conflict. Um, Larry, there, there is the question, and, and Tanya has kind of raised it there, as to whether there is anything else that the state could have done to avoid this prospect. I mean, a lot of people will say pretty bluntly, there's two things. One, you, you get the finger out and you start to work through the pledged accommodation, some of which there's still plenty of anecdotal stories about yeah. people who haven't been, been followed up with. Uh, or B, that... We have overextended ourselves, that we have tried to be generous, but that we've made promises that we can't keep, that we've written checks that are we can't cash. And we're now in a situation where in trying to do the right thing, that we have extended ourselves beyond the point that we can help. Yeah, it's it's an absolute quandary that I, I, I'm not sure I have the answer to. Is it quite possible that we have uh, overextended ourselves in the circumstances? Uh, perhaps it is. Uh, I think everything that, that Tanya has said uh, is absolutely crucial. I think all of that stuff needs to be done. I think there's some innovative things, as she said, that can be done around those issues and the provision of housing. I think in particular, uh, an across-government approach is necessary here. But... You know, again, this is where, you know, I don't know if cynic is the appropriate word, but maybe hardened realist uh, comes to the fore in the sense that, you know, look at the depths of the housing crisis that we have as existed before the Ukraine war. And, you know, uh, pledging that, you know, which is the morally right thing to do, pledging that we welcome people fleeing, as Tanya said, an awful and increasingly dangerous situation is the right thing to do morally. But are we capable? Mm. Are we capable of it? And, you know, when the hardened realist in me takes over from the idealist who says this is what we should do, uh, I really wonder whether we are. And all the things that Tanya says need to be done, I agree they need to be done. 
can they be done is the big question and I don't know the answer to that mm, Tanya well, I'd have to say I think it, they can be done because you have to believe they can be done. Um, and I mean, look, we, we're in these extraordinary times. This is the biggest refugee movement since the Second World War. So it's in our lifetime. We just haven't experienced it. Many of us haven't experienced it in our mm. lifetime. And it's arrived and it's here. Um, well, I would hope with this particular crisis that there might be some learning for how we deal with the housing crisis, because I think one of the big things you're seeing is, you know, you have a, a hard working group of civil servants in government trying to come up with solutions. Yeah. And they have done, including explore, exploring modular housing. Uh, and actually, guess what? The spec doesn't look too bad when it comes. So, I mean, yeah. there's lots of opportunities to think, well, look, this is working for refugees. Why aren't we doing this then for everyone on our housing list as well? Why aren't we finding the mm. sites? Why isn't government putting these yeah. into the well, we, we've, well. had, we've had Daryl O'Brien on this programme earlier this year where I asked him about some of the short term changes yeah. that were they were making where they were even considering suspending some planning laws so that you could fast track a lot of these things and I said well why is it a crisis now and why wasn't it a crisis for the last two yeah. or three years when you had yeah. 10,000 people in emergency accommodation anyway Yeah. so the lessons yeah. are there I, I, I always think you know I always have felt with the housing crisis sometimes when you talk to different people in the space there is always a kind of feeling where we're going to try this and see what happens there and we're going to try this and we'll see what happens there and I remember one civil servant explained to me the international student accommodation and how that was going to resolve the housing yeah, crisis in on, Dublin. There's going to be seven different sites. Yeah, yeah there's going to be seven yeah. different sites. But this is in the past. And what's going to happen? All the rich international students will want to go there and they'll leave the private rent accommodation and that will bring down the price of housing. And I was kind of going, do I really believe that? A lot of ifs around that. And I was thinking, you know what, it's obviously for tourists. But yeah. I think that's always been what's held back, you know, the, the different responses at a national level in this area. Mm. Um, the, the key now is, is to bring the right people together around the table and to invest and that, that could be bringing <clears throat> the international organisations in you know some countries in Europe have actually done that uh, Medicine Frontier has arrived in I think it's into, into the Netherlands so because because we are dealing with mm. the refugee movement in Europe it's not happening in Africa or Asia it's happening here and this is where we need to respond but I do Do, do you I, think people will be chilled by the optics of that though that we're like a, a western wealthy European nation we're one of the richest countries pro rata in the world and that we'd still be reliant on international humanitarian or humanitarian organisations to basically house our own people. But I suppose, I would, this is in respect to the Ukrainians, but we don't really have the skills to quickly, you know, we don't have mm. the civil servants or we don't have people on the ground. But if the lesson, no, which is true, sorry, now that's a fair point, but so if, if, if the to, same lessons that, that can be learned in our Ukrainian process can be applied to our own, then you have a kind of a similar idea really where you, suddenly you've got all these people, you have no formal accommodation in which to put them that's the situation we've been in for years. So A, there's a chilling effect of, oh, why haven't we done yeah. it for a few years? But then B, yeah. why we people will say, why are we doing it for yeah. refugees in this country and we haven't done, done it for our own, as they'd say. It, it, I, th I think, it, you know, when you have a crisis, it, 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 motivates, it motivates decision makers, it motivates politicians. I think that's probably what's happening mm. here. Whatever's on the front pages of the newspapers takes their attention. Um, and I think, that, I think that's why you're seeing a bit more creativity. It really is about getting the best thinkers, the best people are good at mm. operations in government into this space supporting the Minister for Children but also the Minister for Housing playing a bigger role and what you'd love to see is you know it's also about local communities being planned as well you know there's been a lot of coverage this week about Killarney um, a significant number of people in the Killarney area you know could they be planning accommodation for the Ukrainians that also bolsters the local community in different rural areas as well mm. uh, Absolutely on, on that page just to come in quickly one sure, thing yeah. that I, I've, I've long thought uh, should have been done I think 
seems to be afoot now, and this is reported in page six of the Business Post, and that is the government, and of course, this is not a panacea. Nothing we talk about is going to be a panacea, mm. but the government is now going to step in, apparently, uh, and buy some of the dormant so-called ghost estates that yeah. sprung up around the country. Yeah. Uh, that's not going to solve everything, but to me, uh, it's a long overdue move that makes an awful lot of sense, and in terms of what Tanya says about creating communities, et cetera, et cetera, uh, one would think that this can have, you know, a spur things uh, on a number of different levels. Uh, and again, you know, this also, if you look at where some of these places are, uh, again, we've had the, the debate, ongoing debate about how Dublin-centric the country is, et cetera. These mm. are typically located in rural areas and elsewhere uh, and can help rejuvenate those communities. Yeah, as well. um, it might be Dublin-centric or it might, it might be intended to apply outside Dublin, but it is unfortunately data that's compiled by something called the Dublin Democratic Planning <laughs> Association, which is an umbrella organisation for community associations, which has been founded by two architects. This is on page seven of the Business Post. Um, it has researched uh, approvals granted for large-scale housing schemes, apartments and student developments around the country between 2018 and 2022. It's found that a large proportion of those have never been commenced. Uh, they believe that there are plans for a total of 60,213 homes uh, which are unaffected by judicial reviews and which could be commenced. Uh, Dara O'Brien now apparently looking into uh, the state stepping in and trying to um, instigate all of that. Uh, quite a few texts and tweets coming in about... Um, Refugees. One person actually asking a very good question, which is whether the rent-a-room scheme is included in the government's eviction ban, because if so, people who may consider taking in Ukrainian refugees or anyone else uh, won't risk it now in case the uh, the placement doesn't work out, uh, which is a reasonable question. I don't think rent-a-room is covered by uh, the evictions bill, but if someone's listening who can tell us for certain, please do get in touch. Somebody else says they offered a vacant house to the Red Cross eight months ago. They've had one call, one inspection, and it's still empty. Um, Donald makes the argument that uh, we've taken in over 50,000 Ukrainians, and rightly so, he says. Says uh, our neighbours, the UK, have taken in just over 100,000 pro rata. If they were doing what we had done, they should have taken in 600,000. Uh, he also says their immigration stance is having an effect here in relation to the number of people seeking international protection. That's the argument that the government has put forward, that the Rwanda policy, even though it's never really happened, has been uh, sending some people towards Ireland rather than their first choice, which would be the UK. Someone else says unoccupied holiday homes should be obliged to be made available ASAP. James Androhada says it's time that America stepped up to the plate. We in Ireland should have free flights for Ukrainians wishing to go to America, seeing as they have open borders and a tented village built in New York. No one seems to want to use it, he says. I'd imagine maybe there might be some some visa questions there, but I suppose if these people are um, refugees, if they're recognised as such by the United States, maybe it's something to think about. Uh, and just for a contrary view, Paul in Cork says that, as usual, the media and academic bubbles are out of touch with the ordinary people. There is a huge groundswell of support to stop all immigration until the people already here are sorted out. Then start again. Please give us the statistics of the EU countries that Ukraine immigrants versus pre-war population. Let's see if we really are towards the bottom of the list. Please have ordinary people's views aired and not your own yeah. echo chamber, no. says Paul. Well, I mean, that Paul represents a, a, a decent-sized and growing, I think, school of thought within this country. And far from ignoring it, I think I referenced it uh, directly with a lot of people, and not just people who I would consider to be on the right, politically speaking, uh, a lot of people who I respect and like, uh, I'm just asking these questions, uh, and to be frank, I can understand why they are asked. Now, the mm. question of the, the, the job of government, uh, I suppose, is in many respects to answer them and be responsive. Uh, John yeah. McCartan, by the way, who's, uh, as you'll know, is a governor of the University of Galway, has uh, texted in to commend you on your brand policing at the start. So at least <laughs> end on a nicer note. Uh, still lots of texts and tweets 
coming in about the shortage of accommodation for refugees. Uh, Tara tweets in to say that she's listening to all of us talk about solutions to the crisis surrounding uh, housing Ukrainian refugees. She can't help but think of the 166,000 vacant properties in this country as per the recent census. The thing thing about that figure, Tara, uh, is that even some government agencies dispute that there are 166,000 even though um, that is what the, the government's own census found. They have different definitions as to what constitutes vacant and it's all very complicated. Um, one texter says, I gave first option to Dunleary Rutherland County Council to buy an apartment in Black Rock. I was informed that they have no budget. Joined up thinking, ha ha, says that person. Uh, judicial reviews are at the root of the housing crisis. Without planning permission, nothing can be built, says another. Linda says there are other options. Peace talks. Ukraine is refusing to have peace talks unless they regain all land taken by Russia. This may never happen. Look at our situation now with the North. We need peace talks now. We're not able for all these refugees. We can't house our own people. Europe is destroying itself. Why? We have to have peace talks now, says Linda. I think there is the the precondition that Ukraine uh, regain all the taken land. I think they would see peace talks as a concession in that that circumstance, but a fair argument. Um, One person says the root of the housing crisis is a combination of small nineness in the planning laws plus a succession of governments that turn the country over to planning de- property developer and financial interests uh, says one anonymous texter who I'm sure is delighted at the Sindo front page about Dara Bryan looking for some tax breaks for developers uh, and finally for now uh, one texter says uh, cut the huge welfare that they're hoping to receive and the numbers will drop how can we have refugees in hotels fed and housed and they're not paying a penny towards this well the reason they're in hotels is because we don't have other situations like City West other effectively direct provision centres for them to stay in um, but just worth remembering before I do move on in the discussion about direct provision centres and the debate this week around whether it might be appropriate to charge refugees uh, for the accommodation that they're receiving in direct provision. Um, it is worth remembering that there are quite a lot of people in direct provision who have already been granted uh, refugee status in this country who are therefore uh, free to work or to contribute to society or to do anything they like um, and they've nowhere else to go so they're still staying in direct provision. They are entitled to welfare allowances and all the other prov- protections and provisions of the state um, but the state also then makes deductions from their allowances to cover the cost of their accommodation. So if you're in direct provision, before you are granted asylum, you are entitled to the allowance of, is it 38 euro or so per week? And then you're granted your uh, refugee status and you're allowed to access whatever welfare payments, etc. And by the end of it, after the state takes away the deductions for the cost of your bed and board, you're still left with 38 euro a week. So if those people are entitled to unemployment allowance or anything else, and they're still only coming away with 38 euro, they are actually paying for their bed and board uh, in direct provision centres around the country, grim as that is to think about. Um, 11.34, all right, we've, we've put it off for long enough. Um, we have to talk about the situation in Westminster. Um, it is covered at great length uh, in all of the papers. There's some people who will find it just the drama all to be riveting. There's some people who find the drama to be depressing. There's uh, some people who will find the whole thing to be somewhat irrelevant to an Irish audience, even though I, I don't think it is. Um, Tanya, there's there's loads of it. Where, where do you want to start this morning? Well, I want to start with the lettuce. Um, whoever came up in the Daily Star... So you're a fan Star, of the drama then? Okay. Yeah, I, I tell you, I, I, whoever came up in the Daily Star with comparing Liz Truss to a lettuce and seeing which one is going to go first, um, I think is a genius because it got picked up by everyone including New York Times NBC the international uh, media I mean I don't like seeing the woman being demeaned in that way but it was a, a stroke of genius and uh, no doubt contributed to her retur- uh, re- resigning in, in the way she did I was just raging I was working all that day and couldn't watch it watch it live I mean it's kind of absolutely utterly extraordinary that in such a short pace of time we're looking at a third leader for the Tory party it's it's shocking um, and the, the other thing that really really gets me as well I suppose is that Boris the talk of Boris coming back and, and that's what we all kind of knew what that was his plan he was planning all along he was going to come back uh, like Churchill, uh, Churchill it was in, it was in his, his exit speech 
what what really struck me, I suppose, o- over the week, I suppose it goes down to the problems ultimately with the Tory party and it, it's such a split uh, entity mm. and it's never been able to resolve the problems internally um, with with, uh, with, the, with result of it's driven us t- towards this Brexit cliff. The other bit is they're not good at picking leaders, right? That's telling you something else mm. about it as well. Uh, and the fact that Liz Truss was able to, to, to get to the top and be elected and everyone knew she didn't have the capacity to deliver and she didn't deliver. Everyone knew what type of economic model she was going to propose and she did it and, and she failed. Uh, and they, they sunk the pound, uh, mm. they drove up interest rates, more misery, more welfare cuts, services are going to be decimated because of them. And I suppose that what's striking now is that instead of veering towards a general election, and that's always that's obviously the thing to do now because they, they've really failed in government, they're now opting for a new leader. Um, and the, what, what also strikes me as well is, you know, they're obviously trying to avoid Boris getting into power as well and the 1922 committee that takes responsibility for mm. managing the election of the leader um, had put a high high bar, high threshold. The new Boris was in the Caribbean so they said look by Monday you have to have 100, uh, 100 people supporting you in the Tory party before you can go for election and then you have a week then Boris uh, to be elected because I think they know fundamentally he's not the man for the job um, even though uh, so he seems to be loved by You think by they're the, deliberately making a high bar for him? Yeah, they clearly have made a high bar for him um, to, to get elected and they're obviously trying to avoid another divisive campaign uh, between a number of political leaders I mean I'm always interested uh, reading The Spectator or listening to them on their podcast because they're always kind of giving you what the new and the new thing they're saying is you know maybe we need to choose a period in opposition because they know actually yeah. opposition is <laughs> looming for well, them and they're trying <laughs> to sell it Well I, I actually wanted to come back on that because you, you sort of mentioned that they were doing their best to avoid a general election which of course is Turkey's you know trying not to vote for Christmas but uh, you know there there is no sort of legal or constitutional obligation for them to go to the people even as as well as it would seem that you would change leader twice in three months and expect the country to go in wildly different directions and never consult the people uh, in the meantime. Um, Larry, lots in the papers. Where do you want to start? Um, Well, I I suppose just one one kind of glib observation just reflecting on the past few weeks in UK politics is uh, I suppose the, the American in me kind of said well, at least for once it takes the narrative away from the broken, dysfunctional, chaotic American political system, if only for a short space of time. Uh, short, short space of time, yeah, but you know, yeah, the midterms are a fortnight yeah, away, yeah, so we'll get yeah, there, don't worry. Yeah. Um, but no, the, the, standout, uh, the standout for me is this poll on page 22 uh, of the Mail on Sunday, uh, which, you know, again, is nothing short of extraordinary. Now, we can take this poll with a grain of salt for, okay. all, for, for all we want, but what the poll suggests is that were Boris Johnson to be uh, the Tory leader, that in the uh, next general election, that the predicted predicted Labour majority would be just 26 seats. That's based on voting intention. Whereas if it is Rishi Sunak, um, the predicted Labour majority uh, would be 124 seats. Hmm. Um, now, again, the methodology, everything else, people can quibble with this. But yeah. when we're in a context where Boris is frantically making a comeback, we know that there's an extraordinary lobbying effort to get the 100 MPs uh, he needs on his side to force this thing uh, to go to the Conservative Party membership, this poll could well uh, be very persuasive to some of those who might be vacillating. And remember, uh, what's most important to a politician? Getting re-elected. Mm. Uh, and if she or he decides that backing Boris Johnson means that they have a better chance of retaining their seat, notwithstanding whatever reservations they might have about Boris Johnson, all of that goes out the window because it becomes save my ass. And yeah. I think that um, there legitimately is a chance here uh, of Johnson gets to a 
to 100 uh, MPs. If he yeah. does, and this goes which, to the which, which he's claiming already that he has, even though there's only about fifty or so who yeah. have publicly I, declared for him. I think I think that that's probably bluster. I think he's short. And I think he's frantically trying to assemble them. But to my way of thinking, this poll could be a compelling, compelling argument uh, to TDs who are oscillating uh, right now as to what to do. Uh, and if this does happen... Yeah, I, I, just, I, I don't mean to correct you. I presume you mean MPs, MPs rather than sorry, TDs. TDs. Because if I'm sure there are some TDs sorry. who are oscillating about what, <laughs> what to do sorry. for their party sorry. leaders yeah, too. M- but just M- to make sure that MPs, we've got some context apologies, apologies for misspeaking. <laughs> but if, you know, if this were to happen and if this were to then go to the Conservative membership, you'd have to think that Boris Johnson has a reasonably good chance... Uh, mm. Of returning, and if he does, and we've, as I say, words fail to describe what's happened in recent weeks. If he does, then we're really in territory that I just can't even fathom. Um, somebody texts in with um, an interesting kind of conceptual question, which is, can you tell me why a party leader has to be the Prime Minister, or a Taoiseach in our case? This person says they can never understand this because different skills are required for each role. Now, worth bearing as a little historical note that we've had one situation where the leader of the largest party wasn't the Taoiseach. We had uh, Richard Mulcahy when he was the leader of uh, Fine Gael was not uh, the, the Taoiseach during the first inter-party government as we called coalitions back then. That job fell to John A. Costello. Um, but a kind of interesting question as to whether conceptually could King Charles decide that although well Boris might be leader that there's actually a better chance of somebody else being able to hold the government together and that he should appoint somebody else as his Prime Minister other than the party leader. It's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to. Um, well, if anyone else does have the answers to that, five three one zero six is the place to send them in. Um, Tanya, does there lots of other coverage in the yeah. papers today? Anything jumped I, out for you? Yeah, I, I just want to come back to the Boris bit though. Just on that poll, that rather compelling poll. Um, there is another uh, uh, the, uh, another reportage in, in in some of the articles about Boris. Um, I mean, I love I love the the visuals of him. You know, his hair is trimmed a little bit, still tousled but trimmed. Yeah, uh, we were just talking earlier. He's tucked in the shirt, so he's a bit neater looking. Yeah. Oh well, actually, the, the photograph on page twenty three of the Mail, uh, him getting uh, into his private car after getting off the plane uh, from the Dominican Republic, shirt is not fully tucked in. There's a bit and of sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 and he's striding around. <laughs> he's striding. He's the phone on. Let people know he's on the phone. He's you know his campaign is is going well. Yeah. But it, it was reported the journalist did accompany him on the on the flight back from the Caribbean to to Gatwick because that's what he does now you know when he, when, he, when he's not in office he's on holidays although he was on holidays a lot when he's in office as well yeah. um, was that people booed him when he got onto the plane and that tells you something he's still not popular with a lot of people he, he'll be trading for the and the Tories will be hoping for the fade out factor that people will forget you know and that, that'll help uh, Boris get to the top and even that Daily Mail poll which is very helpful Mail and Sunday poll is yeah. very helpful for him it's telling them that actually it's po- possibly we'll get over the line 26 yeah, 26 vote. Yeah, mm. seats we lose or possibly get over the line there with, 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 with Boris. I mean, yeah. I, I hope if they do select him that someone gets out there and prints the resignation letter of every MP that yeah. resigned and what the, and the statements that they made about yeah. him uh, because it, 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 it's pretty shocking with, with the kind of record that he mm. has in government at all levels. I mean, all people dying because of him. You know, uh, this uh, huge level of civil unrest uh, and, and attack on the peace process yeah. in, in, in Northern Ireland. I mean, the list goes on all the way to bizarre yeah, gold yeah. wallpaper. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sure one of his main <laughs> motivations is he spent a lot of money on that, on that Louis yeah. Guinness furniture and he wants to get the best out of it. He needs to get it back in. But, in. 
To to your point, Tanya, there on social media already, some of the political correspondents and others are juxtaposing uh, the statements that were made back then mm. with the statements of some of those who've now come out to yes, say yeah, that yeah. they're they're backing Boris uh, Johnson, and it is extraordinary yeah. to see. Uh, and the Dean Zahawi, actually the former Chancellor, uh, who was the last Chancellor under uh, Boris Johnson, has this morning offered his endorsement for uh, Boris Johnson to become um, Prime Minister again. And all you have to do is go and look at his tweets and his mentions immediately are reminding him that after 48 hours as Chancellor of the Exchequer as the man residing in number 11 Downing Street Boris Johnson's next door neighbour 48 hours is all he lasted before he sent a letter saying I think you should go mate but now he's saying well I saw how contrite he was and how he'd learned a lesson and he'd be really good if he just brought those messages a second time around uh, one thing I will say just before I go to a break um, that poll in the Mail on Sunday that Larry referenced uh, it says that if Boris Johnson were to be uh, Tory leader again that a predicted outcome in a general election would be Labour 44%, Conservatives 34 and that would mean a majority of 26 seats for Labour. If you go back and look at some of the last polls before he resigned, uh, the Tories were further behind Labour then than they would be in this hypothetical scenario. For example, if you look at pretty much every poll the day or two after he resigned, uh, the, the most uh, first poll just after his resignation um, had Labour 43, Tories 30%. And that would have been a far bigger Labour majority. So Boris Johnson is apparently more popular now than he was when he was made to resign in the midst of any number of extraordinary scandals. Aaron has been in touch and says, doubtless Britain being a shambles is disastrous economically for us, but good enough for them for falling for the self-interested claptrap from that Eaton Toff and his lackeys, uh, says Aaron. Uh, that was 30 cent well spent, my friend. Thanks for getting in touch with that one. Um, someone else has been in touch about uh, the refugee housing crisis and says that I have a holiday home in Louth that I offered to the Red Cross in March. After four conversations, repeating answers to the same questions and then an inspection, Louth County Council told me that I had to put extra ventilation, i.e. holes in my wall, fire safety, etc. That plus talk of a ban on evictions now and landlords may be responsible for bringing houses up to a higher BER. It's really just putting me off. I didn't want to be a landlord, says this person. I just wanted to help, which is uh, an interesting insight into um, some of the reasons why people might not be uh, now forthcoming with properties that were pledged originally to the Red Cross, as well, of course, as those who have pledged and still have yet to hear back. Um, there is lots. Of, we, we touched on this already in, in the, the programme when we're talking, uh, going through the papers with Larry Donnelly and Tanya Ward, um, some of the discussion that there is about housing. Uh, but there is quite a lot of housing. Um, we already mentioned the, the piece about um, Dara Bryan intending to buy up dormant um, estates and try and reactivate their planning formations, talk about the new mortgage limits, talk about um, strict conditions for um, the exemptions to the vacant home tax. Um, Fianna Fáil engaging in Sinn Féin economics, says one economist over the evictions ban. Um, Tanya, where do you want to start on all the, the housing stuff today? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it's really interesting, actually, because this is obviously the biggest issue facing other communities. We don't, we all know one person in our family, if not more, who are struggling because of this. Mm. Um, mortgage interest, uh, the, the central bank's relaxation of mortgage interest rate increases for first time buyers. Um, they'll be able to borrow four times their income instead of 3.5 uh, times their income. Yeah. What really strikes me there, I suppose what concerns me there about that is, you know, I, I think a lot of first time buyers would want to do that because it would be better than paying rent and the kind of levels of rent mm. they're paying. So you can understand why they're doing it from, from that point of view. But they do say that there is a cohort of buyers who will end up in severe arrears if yeah. interest rates go up. And that does concern me because we're going back to that place again. Mm-hmm. Look, I'd love to see that I know last year in terms of apartment accommodation in Dublin, something like over 40% was bought by the institutional buyers. Uh, big those big investment companies. Why can't we get them out of the market mm. um, and give and give 
give first time buyers a fair chance to, to compete and buy property. Yeah, uh, that's well, a, the one category of, of property, by the way, which for which um, institutional investors are exempt from that higher stamp duty, that you'd pay 10% stamp duty if you're mass buying uh, in anything other than a Dublin apartment, basically. But in Dublin apartments, there's only still the 1% stamp duty, so there's no inhibition on them to buy up as much as they like. That's it. I mean, it's good news, I think, as well, the fact that the government is looking at taking on these these sites that have been earmarked for development uh, where the private developers aren't, aren't going to develop them. It's saying it could release up to 17,000 properties. That, that That's good news. It's also good news that the, the restrictions are now going to be coming in from revenue uh, in relation to those vacant homes, because mm. I know the opposition were concerned that what the government was proposing around vacant homes wasn't strict enough but it looks like some of the measures from revenue are pretty strict it, it kind of feels like if you want anything done in Ireland get revenue to do it um, mm. they're, they're, they're always very effective but one of the things that will jump out for people that do have vacant homes they're going to have to provide six months of bills to demonstrate that the house is actually being occupied uh, if there is a builder they're going to have to have documents to show that there is building taking place or yeah. renovation taking place on the property they're going to have to prove it's being occupied them so all of these measures together I think would be very significant um, but I still think it comes down to um, the bigger issues the, those bigger issues are they doing enough to put enough houses mm. into the ground the other story coming through as well is about the 63,000 homeowners who are in danger of falling into arrears yeah. uh, mortgage arrears with, with interest rate increases and I know mm. there's, there's a bill by Jed Nash um, that he's proposing let's give the central uh, uh, let's give the central uh, bank the power to actually control the interest rates and stop the banks from increasing them at that rate. So, I mean, there's a lot mm. of solutions there potentially yeah. that could make a big difference to people if we were able to get them moving. Uh, I just think by the by that if you recall that the mortgage lending rules have only been in place, I think, since 2014 or 15. Uh, and if it is now considered that three and a half times your income just won't buy you the median house in Ireland, I think that's already the mission that housing has, has gone up yeah. by, by yeah. far higher than your, your average salary has. Um, Larry, lots across very fronts anything that jumped out for you today? Yeah, the the, the, the piece that, that, that jumped out at me is by Michael Brennan in the Business Post and this is on generation rent uh, and I think this drives the government's decision which Tanya alluded to which uh, I think is potentially a risky one because of the, its capacity to further drive up the price of housing but there's some very stock figures in this piece, uh, especially to me the one that leapt out and again, uh, this is a cohort that in Irish society didn't exist 20 years ago and that is the fact that between the age of 23% of people renting in this country uh, are between the ages of 35 and 44. Um, that's quite an extraordinary figure. And I think that that is the figure because of their political potency in many respects, yeah. that is driving oh. this decision to expand yeah. what can be borrowed, even though it's risky yeah. because the political power they exert. And if you look at just two other numbers in here, the average age of people buying their own home 38 for a couple, 42 for a single person. When it comes to Irish history, we are really in uncharted waters yeah. here. When you think about the fact that most uh, banks will only lend uh, and only give you a mortgage if they think that you can have it paid off by the time you finished your working life, which is why it's so dangerous if you have people in their 40s still renting because they're getting to a point where even if they had a partner to mm. go, to buy another property with, that the, the scale of the mortgage that they're facing into would be uh, very tricky. I, I mean, uh, you, know, you know where they're doing it though. I mean, like there was an ESRI report that came out very recently and it didn't really get the coverage which I should have gotten really mm. is that you've a lot of people now in rented accommodation one of the things if you look at for older people they're less likely to experience poverty particularly if they're a two person household and the reason for that is they either own their own home and there's a small very small proportion of rented accommodation and another small proportion in social housing 
that's going to change because this generation of 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds are not going to be mm. in home ownership at the same rate. And, and you know, there's 20 years down the line, we're going to see far higher rates of poverty for older people. So that's looming. Yeah. You know, what, you yeah. know, I mean, like political parties need to be thinking about mm. that. It's telling you a story so about what it, the future is going to look like and what enough, you need to do. Although we're talking about generation rents, that actually it's the older generation rents which are the ones that are maybe facing the biggest crisis yeah. further down the line. Uh, it's, genera- it's going to be generation poverty old age yeah. that's what's coming uh, Ronan the Drogheda says Boris Johnson better at governing the Liz Trust so suddenly a valid option again the biggest joke since the inception of the Tory party although we're making a grave error to change the buying conditions now in Ireland when we've got no new houses prices will soar time to buy abroad says Ronan who I suspect will no longer be in Drogheda uh, for very much longer um, Larry Donnelly Tanya Ward thank you both very much for helping us go through the Sunday papers On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.